0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality.
1: Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Monday, December 21st, 2009, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella, hey everybody, Rebecca Watson,
2: hello everyone,
1: and Jay Novella. Hey guys, Evan is off tonight. Uh, but he will be sending in the answers to who's that noisy later on in the show.
2: And today in history, it's the solstice. It's the winter solstice.
1: That's what it is. December thirty first. Yay! <laughs> this is the the time when something stands on its edge.
2: Uh, no, that's the uh, vernal equinox, and is also untrue.
1: That's true. Now things you can you can stand eggs on their edge on the the vernal equinox, but you can do as it well any, every, every other day, day of day. the year, too. <laughs> right.
2: Yes, thank you for being
1: pedantic. You're welcome. Uh, but this is my favorite day of the year in that this is what? when the days start getting longer. Oh. That's the stupidest favorite day of the year I've ever heard. Oh,
2: I like it. I like. Uh, mentally, what about birthday? What about Christmas?
1: I have this image in my head of the analemma, you know, with it. Ah, yeah. And I, I always feel like I'm turning the corner now on the bottom <laughs> of the analemma. Now we're going to be start heading back up for the next six months. That's nice. Wait, I like what? that.
3: The analemma is the is the figure, the shape that the sun traces out in the sky over the course of ah. the year. Uh, so it's like an elongated figure eight, right, Steve? Yeah. Remember, uh, yeah. Dr., uh, Professor Coffin in high school, <laughs> yeah, uh, mapped it out on the floor of the science lab. It, I'll never forget that. But that's the shape it, it creates. So you're saying it's at uh, it's at the it's at the lowest end, right? It's at the bottom of the figure eight and it's heading what back What shape?
0: Up. Oh, it is a figure eight. It's a figure eight. I have an interesting question to ask you guys. I asked a friend of mine at one point, how do they visualize the week and the year, right? So I have a particular way that I visualize the week and the year, and they're, they're very similar. So if you were to – if you in your mind visually think of Monday to Sunday, how does it look? Does it look like a calendar or does it have a different shape to it in your head?
2: Mine looks like a butterfly. <laughs>
0: wow.
1: <laughs>
2: I mean I, I
1: visualize it like a calendar, but I always put Monday first. And then the weekend separate, you know what I mean?
0: To me, it's it's kind of like a misshaped circle. Like Monday would be to the left middle, and then the week drops down kind of like a smile, right? So it goes down to Wednesday up to Friday, and then the weekend kind of just is like a, a smaller curve over to Monday, right? Wow. That's how I visualize the week. I visualize the year kind of um, – Almost as a circle, right, right now we're in winter and we're at the bottom of the year. So when I think about it, I see myself kind of right at the bottom at 6 o'clock.
1: Yeah, I kind of do
3: the same thing except was wow. an
1: anilemma. You know, is that figure eight instead of a, a circle.
3: So we're at the bottom right now. I don't know. I just kind of roll with it. I don't have an image of <laughs> my head of a week.
2: He doesn't spend all of his time thinking about the calendar. <laughs> <laughs> the, you know, the, the week does never shape for me. Well, Re- Rebecca's is a butterfly. That's pretty tricked out. <laughs>
1: Weeks are butterflies, and what are years? Unicorns or rainbows? <laughs> Don't be stupid, Steve.
2: It's a dragon.
1: <laughs> Uh-oh. Well, we better get on to some news items before this degenerates de- de- any further. Bob, tell us about
3: wimps and dark matter. Yeah, dark matter was in the news this past week. Some some articles you may have read uh, kind of overplayed it. They were saying that dark matter finally found, and that's de- definitely – kind of going overboard. One thing, though, that did happen, though, the scientists did did really notice some decent candidate particles that could actually, one of these days, turn out to be dark matter um, once they get more data going through. But these results came came in from the cryogenic dark matter search, which is it's an array of particles detectors 747 meters deep in some mine in Minnesota. I never actually heard of this installation, but it seems pretty interesting. What they actually may have detected is called a WIMP or weakly interacting, massive particle. As the name implies, these particles, they have mass, but they only interact with matter in in the feeblest of ways. I think they only interact through gravity and the weak weak force. Uh, In in this way, they're kind of like the neutrino. So dark matter might be something like this. There might be these vast clouds of WIMPs, these weakly interacting, massive particles it through you know embedded throughout galaxies that are that are exerting a, quite a bit of gravitational influence, uh, but not much else unfortunately, which makes them so hard to detect. Apparently, the scientists expect some specific electrical and heat characteristics from the wimps, so they have a theory on how they actually could be detected. Apart from uh, any, you know, gravitational interaction, which would be tough if you're only detecting a few of these things. Um, and this is what they de- they've been looking for in their detector since 2003. So they've been looking for these things for six years, and they actually did find something, but they're not 100% sure exactly what it is. The problem is that you've got this detector deep underground. Occasionally, these stray particles are going to enter the detector, and they create this background noise that can mimic the WIMPs. So there's a 25% chance that this is exactly what happened. So uh, it's way too big, 25% is way too big to go all ponds and Fleischman on dark matter. Uh, They've really got to wait until they narrow it down a bit. Hopefully in the next two years they'll, uh, they'll get enough data. And if, even if they don't, there's so many other different types of detectors out there that could potentially detect uh, dark matter particles, including the LHC, that uh, some scientists are saying that it, next year will likely be the year of dark matter. We might make some big breakthroughs next year. Is that a
1: prediction, Bob? Actually, yeah. Save it for the next show. save it. It would be interesting. We're starting to see that, you know. It's like the the kind of buzz that was around before the Wright brothers invented, you know, the the flying machine. That everyone thought it was somebody was somewhere was going to invent it, and we kind of have
2: that same buzz. It's like I could definitely see a movie coming out of this. Dark matter <laughs> possibly discovered in an abandoned mine shaft somewhere in the Midwest. It's a horror film. I <laughs> oh, God.
0: Well, I I think it's a lot less tangible, Steve, than you know a of lot course. of people working on a flying machine. You know, like this is there's a lot of luck involved here too, right? Would you think? And listen to me talking about things I have
1: no idea about <laughs> again, <laughs> right?
2: Jay's like, well, we know it's not a unicorn. Yeah, let's start there.
1: <laughs> One more news item. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about synesthesia. We've talked about this before. You guys remember? I love yeah. synesthesia. Synesthesia is awesome. Oh, it's when it's awesome. A one sensory modality bleeds over into another. So you may hear lights, or or see or see sounds, or numbers may have a color or a shape to them. Um, essentially, one kind of information in the brain is there's a secondary sensory perception to to that input. Now, there's been an interesting bit of research, actually a few bits of research that I was unaware of until recently that put a slightly different spin on what synesthesia might be. Ooh. The the concept of synesthesia is certainly the one that I had, and I think the, the one that is consistent with what I've been reading, is that it's essentially, uh, if you imagine, like adjacent brain areas dealing with different sensory modalities, just sort of one carrying over into the next one that's Right next to it. So you can think of it almost as a little bit of signal leakage to nearby brain areas, right? Turns out that may not be all there is to syn- synesthesia, and in fact, it may not be essentially what it is. Uh, there has been a, a study by Jamie Ward and colleagues at the University of Sussex looking at color grapheme synesthetes, those who see numbers and letters as having colors. And what they did was they give them a specific test, where, for example, if you have a puzzle where you have the number two constructing some picture, and the the, the number two is embedded in a field of fives, right? So on the sheet of paper you just see twos and fives, but if you can pick out all the twos, it would make a shape, and you have to see what the shape is. It's have you ever guys ever done that puzzle? It's really no. hard. It's really hard to to for your mind to pick out. The twos from the fives, and to put it all together and see the shape emerge. But if you have color grapheme synesthesia, it's easy, it's easy as hell. The, the twos pop out because it has a different color. Now you're looking at like red on green oh, or something. Right. So it, it's, they do, they perform much better on this test. So that's and, how you
3: can prove that they're actually a synesthete.
1: Yeah, but Steve, I never thought for a second that there,
0: there wasn't something much more profoundly complex about synesthesia I mean there was a guy uh, I remember seeing a, a TV show I bet a lot of people that listen to the show have seen it it's fascinating about you know he's this very very intelligent guy way off the charts intelligent and he um, he, he's the guy that learned a language in one week
3: completely yeah, learned a, a language. yeah the yeah. horizon
2: documentary uh, the man with the amazing brain I think it was called and he had like complex math in his head as
0: shapes mm-hmm. right right and and it was consistent. They, they'd ask him the same numbers, over, like big numbers, over and over again. And he had consistent shapes for them. And that's synesthesia. I'm sure that's a part of it, right? Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. And you're right. And there's cases like that which suggest that there's a little bit more complexity to it, right? It's not just like sight bleeding over into sound or one or, one or the other. But w- what, what Ward did with, with that test, with that particular puzzle, is he gave the subjects only one second to see the shape. He compared you know, the synesthetes to normal controls, and he found that when he gave this, the synesthetes only one second to see the shape, they only did 40% better, or only 40% of the time were they able to, to do better than the normal controls, right? And what, what the people told him was, is that yeah, the what? numbers only really have color where they're focusing their attention. And not Uh where they're not focusing their attention. So if they happened to be looking at the part of the field where the the shape was, they would pick it out. But if they weren't looking right at it, they wouldn't see it. Cool, okay. So that suggests that attention needs to be in the loop in order for the synesthesia to take effect. And that brings in another area of the brain. Then. That brings in a widely distributed area of the brain, right? That that's not just one other piece of the brain. Yeah, that means right. that synesthesia is a is resulting from it's a, a it's very a global thing. Yeah, really a complex sort of interaction of different parts of the brain. So this is not just a leakage of signal from one area to the next. This is a difference in hard wiring and the way different parts of the brain talk to each other. It's a much more complex phenomenon than maybe was previously assumed, which is very, very interesting. And hmm. does, J does explain better, much better, those people who have synesthesia related to abstract concepts. Now get this, there's other evidence, hmm. I found another study. When I read this, I looked for more studies to see if what else was there to support this. And this was done at the Max Planck Institute that also was looking at color grapheme synesthetes. And what they found is that the synesthetes can transfer their color associations. Transfer them how? So listen, so they showed the, the synesthetes characters from an obscure language. Um, they called it glagolitic language that none of them spoke, which has a different set oh. of characters. And they, and they, they instructed them to tra- oh, wow. to basically associate the same color like, take the color you associate with the letter A and associate it with this character. Take the color you associate with the letter B and associate it with this character. Holy they can crap. consciously, they can consciously program. Yes, that. they consciously transferred the color associations to the new language that they did not understand.
3: What the hell? And
1: then, to, and then they, then after just ten minutes, many of them reported that the the transfers stuck and they now saw those new characters with the colors that they had transferred over and you know how they confirmed that this was a real effect and not just oh. uh, subjective they well, did well they did a similar test they well they did a stroop test you know what the stroop test is you guys yes, remember this yes. this yep. is a, a, a pillar of psycho, of psycho, psychological testing Excellent. in this area the stroop test is where if you if you look at the word uh, red you know r e d it written in blue ink and you're told to say the color of the ink, not the color of the word, there's a delay because you have to suppress your instinct to read the word. And that you can't get, make that delay go away. So it's, Unless it's upside down. Well, yeah. I mean, if, you, right? if, if you're seeing it in a way that you can read it, you can't suppress it. You know, You could minimize right, it, right. but you can't make it go away entirely. So that's a way of proving that somebody can read the language in which the test is being done. Now, they did the Stroop test, and – if they're seeing the colors, if they if the colors are associated with it, they, you know, then they would have to suppress that that they're seeing of that color, right? And and the Stroop test confirmed that there was a delay, that there was an effect there, so they had actually made they had actually
3: transferred the color associations. Well, not just transfer, but just like, copied, right? I mean, they didn't lose it for normal... No, no, language. well, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, right. I mean, yeah, of course, they, they didn't lose it, but it, they, they called it transferring, but not, not meaning that it went right. away in their original language. What else could they transfer to? Yeah, so, but this means that, that synesthetic associations are made in the higher conceptual areas, not just at right. the sensory levels.
3: Isn't that interesting? That's really cool. Now, this... Holy crap.
1: Well, Steve, how profound of a
0: difference is, is the structure of their brain? Like you said earlier that they're... There's like a hardwiring difference. Yeah,
1: so that's a really good question. And I found other research that found that – FMRIs? Yeah, looking with with FMRI studies and other MRI studies that synesthetes have more gray matter, just total gray matter by volume, than non synesthete controls. Ooh. And that they have novel brain connections that are widely distributed throughout the brain, not just in the sensory area. So the differences exist throughout the brain. So their brains are wired differently. They're wired differently, and it produces this you know, new phenomenon of, of synesthesia of combining different types of abstract thought and different types of, of sensory input. And that now the neuroscientists who are looking at this are hypothesizing that you know this is actually can, maybe telling us a lot about how the brain works, and maybe that we can exploit this to to further investigate how the brain is is normally wired up. In that um, you know the the way we make connections, abstract connections in our head, may be a similar phenomenon, right? The way one thing reminds you of something right. else.
3: So so d- the scientists can treat synesthetes like they were like sh- victims of a stroke, where part of their brain is knocked out, and they could see what the deficit is. So here they're seeing, you know, what these guys can do based on their wiring, and then and then kind of extrapolate to normal brains and and learn. Yeah, although more it, about it, our it was, it brains the, well, from. What but they Bob, they're,
0: n- they're not handicapped, you know, if anything, I would say that... No, no, not they're, at
3: all. They're, they're, they're like human 2.0.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think they have a more profound consciousness than us, than normal people. Yeah, I mean, again, I mean,
1: it actually, the word normal doesn't really even apply here, you know, uh, it's really, you know, and I may have actually even used it inadvertently myself previously, but it's probably better to like non synesty controls, not quote-unquote normal people, because right. the other term that's kind of emerging is neurotypical. So synesthesia mm. is not cool. is not neurotypical, but what this really gets to is that there's a lot more variation in biology than we really imagine, and that you know the, the, all this variation is experimenting with new patterns and new abilities, and a lot of them probably don't result in any noticeable difference or um they're neutral they you know it's just you know, people are different right um it's not really possible to say one is more typical than another or better than another. It's just people are different. Well, this is a way that's a little bit more, more profound. And it, it may produce a, a neutral but interesting difference in some people. But, it, it, but sometimes, like with the math genius, who can actually do mathematics more quickly because he can you know, combine the shapes of the numbers into a new shape, which is the answer to the, to the equation. That's at least how he reports how he does it. Right there, it, there just happens to be this freakish benefit, you know, to this novel hardwiring.
2: Well, yeah, and that's that. So that's Daniel Tamad. That's the guy that, that Jay was talking about, and and I think he is very interesting in that he does have this supposedly this incredible ability. As far as anyone can tell, um, all the tests thus far have shown that he actually does have that ability to see numbers as shapes. Uh, other people do as well, but he's one of the first to have come along uh, who's able to communicate it because it seems like a lot mm-hmm. of people who have his kind of savant abilities have such severe autism or like he has Asperger's, um, but he can he can communicate it. So it seems like it comes with certain disadvantages uh, in a way uh, when it comes to actually communicating with with other people Um so it's really interesting when scientists can find people who have the ability but aren't hampered in, in other ways socially so that they can actually explore it more. Yeah, so sometimes there are
1: trade-offs, right? And in, in, in evolution and in biology, there's often trade-offs. But sometimes, you know, uh, this natural evolutionary experimentation hits on something that's a net gain where there, there isn't a trade-off, it's just a new ability emerges. So that's, the, to me, the coolest part. First of all, it's just really cool how the, the, what we're learning about synesthesia, but also when you think about what this really means about how nature and biology is experimenting and how new abilities like this can emerge and evolve is awesome and is also a really good example of uh, what, again, what the creationists say just don't ha- doesn't happen or is extremely unlikely to happen. You know, Again, I think a, lo- a lot of people who can't ima- quote-unquote imagine how things could evolve have a lack of appreciation for how much variation there really is out there in nature.
2: Right. Now we just need a very fertile young woman to find crazy math skills uh, incredibly attractive. And uh, go hook up with Daniel Tammett. Yeah. Well, you know, that's an interesting
1: point, Rebecca. And there's actually been speculation that given the the fact that our society is becoming more technological, there actually is in, in recent times the emergence of what some people have called the alpha nerd, right? Meaning <laughs> that the male, and it could actually even be a female too, who succeeds reproductively in, and as well as in other ways. Because they are, they have, you know, mad science or math or engineering skills, and that this may actually, you may, we may actually be seeing that a selective pressure is favoring these of these abilities. You know, some people have gone as far as to say maybe that's why we're perceiving an increase in autism diagnosis. Some guy actually put this forward as a serious hypothesis. We're seeing more autism because engineers are having more kids because they're being they're they're being selected for. In our new, you know, technology-driven society,
2: it certainly seems likely. It's, well, it's yeah, probable. i will say so, probable. So, Steve, not impossible.
0: As you were explaining all this to me, I was thinking about how, you know, I, jokingly, like one of the mutant, one of the mutant powers going to evolve. You know, like, <laughs> <Right>. but <laughs> I think but this yeah, counts.
2: So, this comes really close. It does. does. So,
0: there, there's something. There's something like incredibly powerful about it, and I and I'm just thinking, you know. How, how interesting is it to think our biology could just keep going so much more profoundly forward than where it is right now. Like our consciousness could be, you know, and, and people who, who experience synesthesia, like I bet if you had a conversation with them, you wouldn't even notice a difference, right? Like they're, they're, Right. So they're they're just operating with a, a, another tool set that we don't have that doesn't really change them in a way that you would think, wow, they're totaled or weird. Right. No, no. Not it's like drugs. some
1: people who have ridiculous music skills. There's stuff going on in their head that's not going on in your, your head or my head. You don't think that they're weird or anything. They're just really musically adept, for example. I find that so unbelievably interesting, you know, and I'll never be able it's like seeing in colors
0: that you you can't perceive. Right. Like I wanna see it. I wanna know what that's like. I wanna what color is ultraviolet?
2: It's kinda purpley, isn't it? It is. It's cool because we also we often think about the future in terms of what new technologies will have and how the actual world will look different. But we always I think we we think of it in terms of how we ourselves would perceive that future world. We don't Ever really, or I don't ever think of it in terms of the population and in the future, our uh, descendants may actually be physically interacting and experiencing the world in a fundamentally different way than we do now. Oh, there's no
3: question in my mind. Yeah, exactly. That's how the the idea that
2: you know, in in several thousand years, they'll just be tasting colors, and that's that. (laughs) Right, right, right. You never know. Let's go on to a couple of questions. Several thousand. Your
3: grandkids would be doing that.
1: All right, let's go. <laughs> uh, question number one comes from Matthew Floritos from New Zealand. And Matthew writes I realize your show is significantly news oriented. However, I feel like you're never really talking about how you see the future of skepticism or the future of the movement if it can't be called such, in general. We're all going to be tasting colors. (laughs) For instance, (laughs) do you feel that as new generations roll around, society will grow increasingly more skeptical or more favorable towards science? From my perspective, the new media out there, video games in particular, are overwhelmingly skeptical. There are a few religious or kooky games out there. One of the best-selling series in the well-known Grand Theft Auto series which is, in a word, cynical and takes no prisoners in pushing a skeptical message, making a South Park-esque mockery of religion and pseudoscience. Then, of course, there are many science-based games such as Half-Life, which you have, in fact, mentioned on your show before in relation to the Coast to Coast hoax, where somebody pretended to be the game's protagonist. Looking at this, is it too hopeful to say that Western society will grow increasingly more skeptical as the years pass? Well, that's a very interesting question. We actually have touched upon this in the past. I know when we interviewed Paul Kurtz, and you can go back and look at that interview, we, di- we discussed this very question. We, this is a question that I asked of Paul. But I don't know that if, we, if we've discussed it among the rogues. So what would you guys say? What, what's your, your bottom line take on this question? Is, is Can we hope that society is going to get more skeptical in the future? Well, I think the first
0: question is have we, you know, what what do the statistics tell us? I'd say that that we have, right? I think that our society has grown a more a stronger foundation of rational thinking, uh, even though it may have slipped a little bit here and there. I think our our science has progressed a great deal. I think especially with the uh the advent of the internet, I mean the, the ability to get information is so much more profound now than it ever was but you know has the number of people that that believe in woo gone down i don't think so but i don't know
2: yeah it's i actually i think we have answered this question a few times because it comes up often at live shows and i always say that that yeah i'm i'm very optimistic and i i don't think it's necessarily about the number of people who believe in weird things but the fact that we seem to be as time goes on Neutering superstitions and myths, and uh, turning them into from from something dangerous into something that's just a pastime for the wealthy. You know, I I think there's obviously like the, a tremendous amount of work to go uh, when it comes to dangerous pseudoscience and and superstition. But in general, I I think that we're we're doing okay and i think that science is continuing to to grow uh, or our our scientific knowledge i should say is is growing and it will continue to grow into the into the foreseeable future so yeah i i give us thumbs up
3: uh you know i could see i could see it go both ways neither one would surprise me i think skepticism has grown by leaps and bounds in the past 20 years or so but i i think irrational beliefs have also grown uh, maybe maybe not quite as much. I'm not, it's hard to say. But if I look into the future, I could see you know science really and, and critical thinking and skepticism really coming to the fore and, and doing really well in, in a way that would make us very very happy. And uh, you know never getting rid of a superstitious belief, but you know marginalizing it to a degree that we that we haven't seen, but maybe ever. But then the other side of me is thinking, you know, I could just see it totally going nuts and people totally. Descending into superstition. And, and as, as science get, gets more and more complicated and technological, I could see people just like giving up on it, be like, I can't understand that, and treating it as like a religion, that it's just so complicated. You have your techno priests that nobody can understand. Who knows if they're telling the truth, type of thing. And I could see that too. So I don't know what the hell to expect. What do you think,
1: Steve? Yeah, you know, I'm kind of in, in Bob's camp in that, depending on how you look at it, you see all kinds of trends overlapping. I think if you take a long view, that it seems as if there's been a general trend towards less superstition, more rationality, just in human civilization. And I'm hoping that that long-term trend holds up. Superimposed upon that, I think there's a shorter-term cyclical trend, where pseudosciences come and go, not only individually, but just in general. And I, I think there's always going to be a battle to fight, there's always going to be you know we, we may marginalize one pseudoscience and two others will take its place and we'll have to deal with them as well so the human nature will and and the the need for this sense of transcendence this need to believe in something and that, you know the, all the pitfalls that we all talk about those are not changing or at least not quickly again maybe we'll evolve into a more rational species in a few thousand years but at least for the foreseeable future people are people and we're going to have to deal with the you know inherent irrationality I think of our species. Also if you look at it from another point of view if you look at the different cultures around the world, some cultures are much more rational than others and some are, there are some cultures are so thoroughly steeped in pseudoscience um, or, or superstition that it, what that tells me is that there's the potential for that to happen to, to just about any culture. That they, they could descend and really get overwhelmed with superstition. And I, I don't think that that is impossible, you know, so while I think the long-term trends are hopeful, I think there's always going to be these shorter-term trends and, and we're always going to have something to combat. And, and without a group promoting science and trying to keep science connected to the public and to pop culture in general, that there is the risk of like what Bob says is that science becomes completely detached from from popular culture and becomes almost the equivalent of a priesthood, and we could even end up with an an, a, a, an incredibly regressive, superstitious population.
0: Well, yeah. Take it. Let's take a a long term stab here and just throw some ideas down real quick. Like, let's say that in a couple of hundred years, we get to the point where we're absolutely evolving ourselves, right? Where we're we're choosing to make changes in our consciousness, and we're we're merging with machines, yeah. you know, computers or whatever. And all bets are I mean, off. I think. Yeah, at that point, the reality is going to become very blurred. We, we yeah. won't even be sharing the same reality anymore. And then, and
2: then reality is just... going to
3: be what you make it. Yeah. See, so... people could be living in their own their own little virtual worlds, and it could be whatever they
2: want. Yeah. yeah I mean, they that's... already are. They don't really need the extra help.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let's do one more question before we go on to our interview. This one comes from Damon McLean from Mill Valley, California, and Damon writes. What would happen if a person was standing in the path of a proton in the Large Hadron Collider?
0: Yeah, I'm really happy that we're we're answering this question because as soon as I read that, I thought, man, I have no idea and I really want to know the answer to that.
3: My first thought when I thought of this question, this is a really fun question, was that the magnets are cooled by liquid helium and you've got some intense magnetic fields going on that would definitely wreak some havoc with your life form readings. I think you might be dead before the proton hits you, but assuming I assume you meant that to ignore that kind of stuff. What kind of kinetic energy would it, would one of the billions of protons? Yeah, or just they shoot the proton you. out of the collider and into you. Well, from what, from what I could figure out, uh, the the LHC will hopefully at at some point, maybe in 2011, reach the uh, the their limit of seven TeV or a trillion electron volts, and that that kind of energy will accelerate protons up to. 99.9999991% of the speed of light, so pretty, pretty damn fast. Physicist Brian Cox. I found a quote from him. He says that the total energy of the beam would be like a battleship moving at several miles per hour. Now I don't know what that would do to you. It would be cool, but it would not be pretty. But that's a whole bunch of protons. One proton, uh, though, wouldn't you know? Wouldn't wouldn't be too bad from what I, from what I could gather. I found a f- uh, a frequently asked question website at CERN and. Uh, uh, they, they're quoted here as saying that each particle accelerated in the LHC carries an amount of energy equivalent to that of a flying mosquito. So, Damon, I think that would be your, your answer right there. Essentially, it's equivalent to the impact of a, of a flying mosquito hitting you. So, so not too bad. And I, I wanted to do some verification of this. So I converted uh, 7 trillion electron volts to ERGs. So an ERG is a unit of energy that's about equal to the force of a falling raindrop. And I plugged in 7-TEV, and it came out that uh, uh, that would equal to 11 ergs or 11 raindrops. So it's I guess that's roughly equivalent to, to a flying mosquito maybe.
1: Yeah, but Bob, that would all
3: be concentrated
1: into one proton,
3: not spread out over a I mosquito. I thought about that, Steve. Why, yeah, I,
1: I wonder what that would it, do. would it just tear right through you, you know? Yeah, I mean a single proton, unless it hits a DNA molecule and mutates it into a cancer cell, right, then you probably don't have anything to fear from a single proton. But also, Bob – Aren't protons passing through us right now,
3: just from yeah?
2: Are we being bombarded nonstop from the cosmic rays the and stuff?
3: Not many, but I mean, occasionally. Anything going through you now, if they're cosmic rays, the cosmic rays are pretty much eaten up by the atmosphere. By the time they get down here, they're pretty, you know, attenuated and and they've been blasted into into subparticles and and types of things. There's there's nothing there's nothing like these protons reaching us down here.
2: I just happened to uh, have been backstage with Brian Cox. Oh, you rock. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we it was at Robin Ince's show, Nine Lessons for oh. Godless People, um, which was <laughs> just outrageously amazing. And anybody who's near London next year has to go. So uh, I was backstage with Brian um, and I, I was also with Neil Denny who does Little Adams, and as you guys know, Neil and I sometimes collaborate on interviews, so we decided to uh, ask Brian a few questions, and uh, I unfortunately I hadn't read this question from our listener uh, prior to this, or I would have asked him directly, but I did ask him something sort of similar, which was, what would happen if you put two kittens in the LHC and fired them at each other? So this is what he had to say. Um, Yeah, I was was just having this conversation with someone about the particle collider and we we had this question about what would happen if you put um, a kitten in and a kitten on the other side and then you fired them at high speeds. Um, If you got them
4: traveling at 99.999999% speed of light, which is the the, the speed of the protons, which would take a lot more energy, so you couldn't, but if you did, then they would weigh 7,000 times more, they would be 7,000 times more massive for the pedants. Those people who don't like astrology on 1K, pedant, 7,000 times more massive, and time would pass 7,000 times more slowly for the kittens relative to the. So they would live 7,000 times as long as their twin kitten stood there next to the detector, watches and, watches and go around the ring.
2: So you would have like a perma-kitten of sorts?
4: Yeah, it would live 7,000 times longer and be 7,000 times heavier.
2: Um, how, more fast... Massive. <laughs> how fast? Could, <laughs> how fast could a kitten go in the particle collider?
4: uh oh very very slowly it wouldn't even be able to move a kitten because it can only move a, you know it can only move a proton at 99.9999999% the speed of light if you think how many protons are in a kitten well remember Avogadro's number the six times 10 to is 23 in it and so i don't know many moles of <laughs> hydrogen and water and fat there are in a kitten but someone can work that out and so it. it it's a lot right so there's a lot of protons in a kitten
2: it would have to be a homeopathic kitten
4: uh, well in- infinitely diluted yeah don't mention homeopathy because we're getting tweets again from <laughs> people I
2: just want to get you in trouble <laughs> i don't want to know i don't want to know thanks brian it's a pleasure oh and before we move on just Just to note that um, the full interview with Brian, as well as interviews with a lot of other British comedians and scientists, uh, is on Little Adams uh, and it will be going up on Skeptic, the Skeptic podcast, soon. Well, let's go on with our interview.
1: Joining us now is Michael Specter. Michael, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. Well,
5: thank you for having me.
1: And Michael is a New Yorker staff writer since 1998 and is the author of the book Denialism, How Irrational Thinking Hinders Scientific Progress, Harms the Planet, and Threatens Our Lives. Now, Michael, reading through this book, I definitely had the notion that this was a fairly hardcore skeptical book. Have you considered yourself to be a skeptic? Well,
5: possibly not in, the, those, not in the word skeptic, but if you defined it, I probably would fit into the definition. I'm just someone who has seen these issues grow over time, and it's concerned, concerned me and concerns me greatly now.
1: And was there one particular issue? I mean, you wrote about several things in, in the book, and we'll touch on a couple of them, but was there one that really motivated you to write this book more than the others?
5: I don't think so. I think what happened was about a decade ago, I wrote a short thing about some sort of vaccine lunacy, and I didn't know very much about the issue at the time, and I just thought these were people who, you know, had buried their head in the sand for some understandable but mostly not understandable reasons, and they represented a small group of people, and I moved on, and then I soon after that wrote a piece about genetically modified food mostly in Europe, and I was struck and continue to be struck, dumbstruck, by the response to it and the growth of this sort of religion of organics. And that, in vitamin um, worship, it just all seemed to add up to this sort of common thread of wanting to run away from data.
1: So you saw that as a pattern across these disparate issues.
5: I did, and I saw other issues too, some of which I didn't even write about. I've actually been criticized for um, one of which is um, creationism. Mm-hmm. I went down to the Creation Museum. Uh, I thought I would write about it, but I just sort of felt that if people want to write, believe their ancestors rode around on the back of dinosaurs, I don't really think that I can have much of a useful conversation with them. I really wanted to write about things that maybe we could argue about with some value, and I didn't see that or AIDS denialism, which I've written about quite a bit, or even climate change as falling into that category. So, so
1: how would you define denialism?
5: Well, to me, denialism isn't so different from denial. I mean, you know, people face terrible things all the time, and their first reaction is often to pretend they don't exist. And I think on an individual level, that's totally understandable, and it might even be healthy if it's brief, as long as people come out of it. But when, when we do it as a society or as a segment of society, that to me is denialism, and that is dangerous. And I think one of the things that I believe is that the consequences of those actions are far more significant than maybe some people s- suggest they
1: are. Did you try to focus on those issues that you felt had big consequences? Yes, and I also
5: guess I tried to focus on issues that I thought people didn't focus on. I mean, For instance, climate change has bigger consequences than any issue I can think of. I didn't focus on that because I just thought that the data there was so overwhelming, I wasn't really sure I could make a contribution. I mean, in my last chapter, I read about synthetic biology, which is an attempt to look at some solutions to climate change. But I, I mostly wanted to look at issues that I thought maybe were amenable to having people sit down and say, whoa, what's going on here? You know, I kind of feel with some of these issues, the sides are so hardened and so religious that it's difficult to have a conversation.
1: And why do you think that is? Because obviously if we're talking about creationism, it's easy to see why the creationists are being religious because that's the ideology from which creationism is coming. But when we're talking about right. organic foods, let's talk about organic foods for a while. Why has sure. that been so politicized and emotionalized when you would think that would be something that would be driven and should be driven by the science?
5: Well, I think when I talk about organic food with people and they start getting upset, what I end up usually hearing is anger about two things. One is the corporate ownership of seeds, and the other is the excessive use of pesticides and chemicals. Now, we can talk about the corporate ownership of seeds, I don't think the situation is quite what many people do think, but that is not science. That is a policy issue, and what I'm trying to do is divorce the science from the way it's used. I think that can be done intellectually, I know it can't be done in life, but if we don't like the way a technology is used, we can change that. People look at organics and they think here is a safer, cleaner approach to life at a time when we know there are a lot of problems. We know that the food supply is often contaminated and we know that we're eating badly and that the diseases of excess are our biggest diseases in this country. But what people don't seem to realize is that there are other countries and a billion people go to bed hungry every night and I'm much more concerned about them, frankly, than I am about Americans. So
1: you think that people start with a policy position based upon their political ideology and then they want the science to fit their policy?
5: Yes, I do think that. And I also think that when it comes to food, most people start from a sort of gut feeling of I want to protect my family, I want to protect myself, I want to do what's right. I think most people who care about organic food care about the earth. It's not that they don't. I mean, I don't talk about genetically modified food in the book because all food we eat is genetically modified. I I talk about genetically engineered food. And yeah, there's a difference between shooting something around it with a plant plant gene gun and modifying something over generations. But the results so far have been promising. And and over the next few years, there are going to be some really exciting products. And I don't want to see those things prevented from coming online in the places where they're needed because some people in Iowa don't like the idea of it.
1: So on on the one hand, it's maybe the human need for simplicity. Everything has got to be in line with, with their ideology, including the science. But at the, um, you talk also in the book about the fact that there is some deep-seated mistrust of the institutions of science. Some of it deserved. And can you sure. tell us a little bit more about that?
5: Well, I mean, I think some of denialism is a response to, you know, when I, when I was growing up, We were told that science would cure all diseases and hunger and would fix water and take salt out of it if we were running out. We would solve all problems with technology. And, you know, while I will argue that we've solved a lot of them and we're going to solve a lot more, it is also true that we've caused a lot of harm. We've made a lot of mistakes and everybody knows it. People know about Chernobyl. They know about Three Mile Island. They know about Karen Ann Quinlan and they're, they're anxious. They look at the healthcare system and they see that it sucks in any number of ways. And they look at our government and they think, can we just believe someone when they say something? And I don't think anyone should, you know, you talk about being a skeptic, I don't think anyone should believe anybody when they're just told take a pill or take a shot. But there's data out there. And what concerns me is that when people look at the data, especially overwhelming data, it doesn't seem to matter. I mean, you've. Yeah, we, we have outbreaks of mumps now in New
1: York. I mean, this right. is just craziness. So it seems like some of it is a backlash from the 1950s sort of utopia of science, and now people are disillusioned that it's complicated. It, it also has risks, and it can also be abused. So maybe they're overreacting a little bit to that fact. I
5: think that that's exactly true. I also think, let's face it, we have oversold science a bit. I mean, when I say we, I mean scientists, I mean government officials and I mean people who do what I do for a living including probably me. We, we tend to write stories about how things are going to solve problems and they may solve problems but the timeline is usually much longer than you might guess from looking at a newspaper article and people get frustrated.
3: Where's jet packs? Where's yeah, the where the jet is the jetpacks?
5: Yeah, where is the jetpack? <laughs> I want that damn thing. But here's the thing, we're solving some of these problems, but people don't have perspective. I mean, this is one thing I wrote about Viox in the book, and one reason I did so was because that was an, a very complicated issue to me, because on the one hand, Merck did a terrible thing, and they lied, and they propagated a falsehood on the American people, and many people died. On the other hand, I have to say, and I have been beat up by this in the press, that drug should be on the market today mm-hmm. under different circumstances. Yeah, I mean,
1: that, you made an interesting point that, I mean, we have other drugs on the market that just have a, what we call a black box warning. It's like, you don't use it under these circumstances where you have to monitor patients for, for in certain ways. You, you, these are the risks. If you use it properly, you can still eke the benefit out of this drug as long as you take the risks into account. Vioxx could have gone that way except for the fact that Merck kind of screwed themselves by doing what they did.
5: They screwed themselves, they screwed people, but also we live in a country where, and, and I'm not a physician, but I believe it's true that once a drug is approved, a doctor can pretty much prescribe it the way he or she sees fit. Now, we should, we should have some system in this country for being able to say, you're obese, you have diabetes, you have a history of heart disease, you have cholesterol problems. This drug is dangerous for you, but for the millions of others, you know, the risk, we take risk. In everything we do every day, everything, get in a car, get in an elevator, whatever it is, there's a risk. Yeah, People it. never look at the both sides of it. They, you know, it's, If it's a fraction, they don't look at the numerator and the denominator. They look at one side, and mm-hmm. I have to say it drives me nuts.
1: Yeah, that's a common uh, problem that we encounter as well. People will consider only the risks, not the risk versus the benefit.
5: I, you're completely right. I mean, I, I hate to beat up on this guy. I have a bit, but Leonard Lopate, who is a very smart, NPR interview, I had him on, uh, he had me on the show, i had been on the show a few times and it's always pleasant. He has a child with autism and he's absolutely convinced it was a result of a vaccine. Right. And it's very difficult to say to a person who's got a child who's really in trouble, because um, I've seen it and it's painful, oh, you're wrong. You're wrong about your kid. Um, and in fact, that vaccine actually came three months after you thought it did and you're conflating a few things and we've done tests with millions of people. The, I totally understand why that is not a satisfying answer to a person who has to go home at night and deal with something so painful. Nonetheless, if we don't use the data, if we don't rely on the facts, I really don't know what we can rely on.
1: I you know, obviously, I agree with that, and I encounter that same situation myself. I try very hard, and we generally do, when an individual is making a claim about their own life, we try not to get into that. But if yeah. we, we just want to back up. We want to talk about the data as it were the science. Right. You, know, not, you don't want to get involved with you know, de- debunking someone's personal feelings about an experience that they personally had or their own child. It's a no-win situation.
5: I mean, you know this better than me, but I think what happens is that people are programmed, and understandably so, to respond to the things in their own environment or their cousin's cousin who got sick or who felt better after he started taking echinacea or whatever it is. And it's very difficult to throw a stock of statistics at someone when they're absolutely convinced of a personal belief. And that's just something that in some ways is human nature, but it also has a little bit to do with education, I think. Mm -hmm. So how do we combat it? Well, I don't know. I mean, I was on a radio show in San Francisco and some woman got on and said, you have said that um, 13 million Americans have received the H1N1 vaccine and there hasn't been one clear death as a result. And that's completely untrue because the cdc released released data saying that um i don't know 13 or 15 people have died in the two months well we could take 13 or 15 million people and tell them to go down to the corner store and buy a newspaper and 15 of them would die too and there'd be lots of divorces and miscarriages and the divorce rate wouldn't go up or down as a result of the vaccine but in any large group these things happen and people don't they're just not able to sort of extrapolate or make that connection, and it's, it's terrifying to me because if we're, I, I just feel, I don't want to overemphasize the science. I'm, I'm going to be 55 soon, and I feel pretty healthy, and hopefully I am. I'm probably going to live twice as long as my great-great-grandparents, twice as long. It's not coincidence. It's science. Mm-hmm. We ought to not forget that.
1: So it sounds like you're saying part of the problem is, is the uh, disappointment over the, the benefits of science being oversold. Part of the problem is a lack of trust, sometimes based on paranoia, sometimes based on some actual real betrayal of that trust, like biox. And also, it, it, there's a, this disconnect between the public understanding of science and the practice of science. We tend to listen more to anecdotes and stories, not so much data on a page and that's probably largely a fault of education, or would would you blame the media for that as well?
5: Oh, the media's never at fault. <laughs> yeah, of, cor- <laughs> of course. Yeah, and the media is often at fault. I, I think there's something else going on here, which is a bigger and more difficult issue, which is, I don't know, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, if you were sitting in a room, you'd probably know how all the things around you worked. Now, I'm not a dumb guy, but I don't exactly know the technical reasons that we're able to have a conference call and someone from London is on it. I don't know how my Internet works exactly, and I don't even know how my carburetor works, and that's okay with me. But I think more and more people are surrounded in their world by things they need to rely on but don't understand, and the accretion of all that is it makes them uncomfortable. And so what you see, and you see this with drugs, um, they run into a vitamin store. Because big pharma is bad and the healthcare system is bad and everything's confusing and it's not curing them. So let's buy you know, a vitamin complex or an antioxidant because it just seems natural. And I can understand that desire. It's just that we have to remember that natural is not necessarily good. In fact, it doesn't really mean anything.
1: Right. So there's also a, a desire to grab control. Is what you're saying? I think
5: so. I mean, I think it's a natural thing. I don't think it's a bad thing, but I just think that one way we could grab control is to understand science a little bit better than we do.
1: Right, right. And I think that may be. That's an interesting insight. And, and you know, my dealings with say the anti-vaccination movement and, and similar denialist movements, what I feel is that they are trying to have a sense of control over the world, over their lives by thinking that they've seen the man behind the curtain, right, that they understand yeah, the conspiracy, exactly. whereas you, know, you and I may be trying to grapple with the, our complex world by understanding the science. And there's a, there's a fundamental difference in process going on. Do you see that as well?
5: Yeah, I do. But I'm also worried about another thing you said, the word conspiracy. Why, when did, um, <laughs> and this is particularly true of progressives in this country, when did progressive and reactionary become synonymous Because I see a lot, you know, the the anti-vaccine people uh, or or even some people who are anxious about vaccines are often well-educated. I mean, I have a college classmate who saw me on a TV show and she emailed me and said there's no way she was going to be vaccinating her kid against polio because we don't have it. And (laughs) we don't have polio right now in this country, and I really hope we never do, but we have it in the world. And the idea that a virus can't return, can't spread – You know, it's only been a generation since our parents were deathly petrified that we'd all become crippled or killed by polio. But we've been so good at abolishing them and banishing them that people don't even know. They don't know what measles is. 200,000 people died of measles last year in the world. But Americans don't know, and most of their pediatricians don't know because we haven't seen it in a long time. And it's very difficult to convince people these are serious threats.
1: Yeah, the vaccines have been victims now of their own success.
5: And they've been remarkably successful.
1: And I have some colleagues who have argued that we really won't get a handle on the anti-vaccine movement until there's the, the serious return of some vaccine-preventable yeah. illnesses. And again, it sort of strikes the fear into into the population. Do you think it's already
3: starting? Right.
5: That may be true. It's really scary. I mean, it's just sad to see mumps outbreaks in you know in Britain and America and to some degree Europe, and the only places where measles vaccination rates are declining. You know, in Africa, the rest of the world, they're all rising and we're getting rid of measles more and more. And the idea that in this great country, our vaccination rates are worse now than they were ever in the last 20 years. is It's really unbelievable.
1: So does science have a PR problem?
5: Yes, we do. We have a terrible PR problem. And we are in many ways responsible. And when I say we, I mean scientists scientific organizations and the press, because I do think the overselling is a problem. I think arrogance is also a problem, because we often portray science as the truth. And if you're not on board with the truth, then somehow you're misbegotten. And I think that pisses people off, and and maybe rightly so. You know, they they don't want to be talked down to. They don't want to be told that they don't get it, and they ought to get in line and do what they're told. But I think there's been a lot of that, and I think that's part of the problem, too.
1: Yeah, we certainly encounter that if, um, because as science gets more complicated, as you were saying. Not only are we surrounded by devices we don't understand, but the the science that's happening on the cutting edge is inaccessible to everyone but the experts in that field. So when people are told, well, this is what the experts believe, you know, the experts are relatively sure that the earth is warming and humans are causing it. Um, You don't have to understand the nitty gritty details. Don't worry about it. Just trust us. That violates, especially in in America, I think that sort of violates our sense of democracy and fairness and self empowerment. Mm -hmm. So doesn't it seem natural that people would say, no, forget that. I don't trust the scientists. I want to make up my own mind.
5: Yes, it does. And it also, I mean, there's another aspect here, and that is A, I think we don't trust authority as much as we used to. In 1947, if a drug company said, stand on your head, swallow this, and run around the block three times and you'll feel better, everyone would do it. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's right that everyone would do it, but they ha- there was a different profile then. It's been eroded, and it's not just because of science. I mean, it's Watergate, it's everything. We've grown up to be a country that's skeptical of our leaders. A lot of that is good. I mean, I'm. As I guess all of you are a true believer in skepticism, but skepticism is is just I think rigorous doubt in questioning. But when mm-hmm. you make the questions and you satisfy yourself with the answers, you got to move on.
1: Right, right. But it it, it makes it so that um, especially now with the internet, it's everyone's a citizen scientist, right, regardless yeah. of their education. And maybe the problem is that people think that they are that they understand more science than they really do, or they don't understand the gulf between where their level of knowledge is and where the experts in the field are.
3: They don't even know who the experts are. and That's part of the problem. They're taking these people as experts who are not experts. Just go to their website and buy their book, and now they're experts.
1: You need to get to a certain level of expertise before you understand what you don't know. So if you have people who don't really understand even the nuts and bolts of science, They just have no idea, you know, where the science really is.
5: But I really do think that that's uh, a tremendous feeling of our education system now, and it's getting critical. You know, if you look at international science tests for high school kids, we're kind of flailing about, If you know, we're, we're where we were 15 years ago in China, India, Hong Kong, Singapore, all those places are rocketing upward, and I think we have this sort of feeling that we're the great technologically supreme nation, and therefore we will remain that way, but there's just endless examples in history of, of people losing their foothold on supremacy for just that reason, and, you know, I have a teenage daughter, and she, goes to a good school and she takes physics and chemistry, that stuff's fine. I I would rather, since I don't think she will be a scientist, I'd rather trade in physics for statistics. I think this is one course they should all take. It's some sort of statistics that would let people evaluate the sort of common choices and risks they face all the time. But very few schools offer that.
1: It's worse even in issues, some that you didn't, you didn't even cover. Like I, For me, personally, it's the alternative medicine issue. I mean, I've con- frequently now put in the position where I'm having to defend the very notion, the very notion that medicine should be based on good science.
5: Well, you know, I, it's funny because in my book, I, I kind of trash Andrew Weil as viciously as I'm capable of doing mm. so. Mm. And some people, including Charlie Rose, that, that has not aired, but um, it will um, – Kind of went to count on that, but it seems to me that it's so clear. It's so clear. The data is so amazing, and it keeps getting to be more amazing that sort of antioxidant pills, vitamin pills, multi, it's all either useless or sometimes even dangerous. Mm-hmm. And by it's all, I know there are vitamins, I take vitamin D. I mean, there are vitamins that work um, for people and that they ought to take, but it's you could go into any vitamin store in this country and basically take 97 percent of the products off the shelf and throw them into the ocean. And the only thing that would happen that would be bad is that it would pollute the ocean. Right. Right. I mean, it, I agree with you. It's very, very disturbing. Um, but again, here's an interesting political issue about that because there you see the marriage of the sort of countercultural left and the right wing. You see the orange Hatches of the world, and you see the sort of you know intellectual progeny of the hippies of the '60s saying. You know, give me the thing. Give me those vitamins.
1: Uh, Yeah, I agree with that. And, Michael, I have news for you. You are a skeptic. I think the kind. Of, I, I'm happy to be called one. Um,
5: I have no problem with yeah.
1: that. I know. I mean, you, I know what you're saying. You're not someone who's tied into the the formal skeptical movement, and maybe you're not exactly sure how we define ourselves. But that's basically what skepticism is. It's just rigorous, as you say. It's rigorous doubt. It's putting the science first above ideology or beliefs. That's it.
5: Well, that's what I believe in, and as you know, I mean, I did cite you guys in my book. I do,
1: because I do know that, yeah. You, you, yeah, you qu- quoted science-based medicine. and
5: uh... It's just so obvious that, that that has been so fruitful. Relying, trying something out, observing whether it works, trying to fix it, repeating it. That has been such a remarkably effective way of doing business these last few hundred years. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to have to fight a battle. You know, I, I happen to know for weird reasons some of the people who run the U.S. vaccine program, they spend half their time, half their time, going around the country, trying to convince people that vaccines are good. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Now, I'd like them to spend more time developing better vaccines and maybe growing vaccines in something other than eggs, the way we did in 1947. You know, I'd like them to focus on the future, not the past. But they have no choice.
1: Yeah, it's 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 incredibly wasteful. You know, pseudoscience and anti-science ultimately just wastes a lot of time and and energy and resources.
5: I know. I agree with you. <laughs>
1: well, we really appreciate you spending some time with us, Michael. And the, the book is uh, highly recommended, Denialism.
5: Okay. Thank you very much. I'm very, I'm very happy to have spoken All with right. you
1: guys. Take care, us, Michael.
3: It's time for Science or Fiction.
1: Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Are you guys ready for this week?
2: Mm-hmm. So ready. Yeah. Okay, I, we
1: have yeah. a theme this week.
0: Uh-huh. The
1: theme is parasites.
0: I hate themes and I hate parasites. I'm
1: going to describe for you three uh-huh. parasites two are real and one is, is made up. Interesting. You have to tell me which one's the fake. Aha!
2: Would a Cato Kalin joke be too. Uh, <laughs> no, non-topical? go for it. All right,
1: here we go. Parasite number one. The spine tick attaches to the base of a vertebrate's spine where it digs down through the meninges to feed off the glucose in spinal fluid rather than blood. Parasite number two. Simithoa exigua is a fish parasite that eats the tongues of fish down to a nub, then latches onto that nub, living in the fish's fish's mouth as a replacement tongue. And parasite number three, Sacculina carcini, is a crab parasite that enters into the shell of a crab, then its root-like extensions enter the crab's organs and nervous system. The crab is then helpless as the parasite lives out its life cycle in
3: the crab's shell. Bob, go first. So we all know that parasites there's some wacky parasites out there so i guess none of these are are totally nuts but um got the spine tick feeding on off glucose um that's pre- i would think that's pretty far for a tick to dig uh i mean normally a tick probably digs what half a body length maybe inside you know with the, with a, with his proboscis or whatever that was called um i i guess it's possible that it could dig 2 3 body lengths to get to this stuff but that seems a little odd to me. Um then you've got this fish parasite eating tongues. Now the first thing I think of when I think of that is that um how is the fish is it hard for the fish to feed while its tongue is being eaten away? Um and wouldn't that just kill the host and and prevent the uh the parasite from uh from uh living anymore? So that uh that doesn't sound too right to me. And you've got this uh, saculina crab parasite. So, Steve, are you saying that this, this uh, parasite takes over the crab and just starts kind of like stealing a car and driving a hot rod for the rest of its life in this crab shell? Yes. Oh, man. That's so freaky bizarre that you'd think somebody – I would have encountered that at some point. Somebody would have said, hey, this parasite completely takes over a crab. And then it does parasite things instead of crab things. I wonder what it does differently.
2: Does it mate? It calls up all its friends, the crab's cell phone.
3: <laughs> how about mating? would he, how how would it know to make a pass at a at a crab?
2: He'd be buys hot tubs. He'd be making
3: paras he'd be making <laughs> parasite moves, not crab moves. Crap! So you you got to end it this year for me, Steve, with a with a <laughs> loss, you bastard. Uh, <laughs> I would think. Oh, yeah, here's another thing. Uh, how about eating? If this thing takes control of a crab, how does it really know even how to eat? And then wouldn't the crab just die? All right, I'm going to say that one is, is fiction. Okay, Jay. Uh,
0: The spine tick attaches itself to the base of a vertebrate spine. I don't believe that at all. I think that's total BS. The reason why is it would if it does that, it could potentially damage its host. And if it kills its host, it's... It's defeating the idea of being a parasite. So I'm going to say that that's the fake. Okay, Rebecca.
2: Okay. When you when you said the topic, and Jay said he hates parasites, uh, and I agreed, I was actually lying. I friggin' love parasites um, because I think they're the coolest thing ever, and uh, so that's why I uh, I I actually know. Um, I think I think I've got this one. Um, sacculina uh the the crab parasite, I believe that that is a barnacle um a mind control barnacle um, <laughs> and it's red, so that one definitely exists um and i I'm pretty sure I've heard the tongue thing before I'm not positive, um but that one does ring a bell, and once you hear something like parasite eats the tongue and replaces the tongue. You can't unhear it, so uh, <laughs> that's so goddamn joke. which brings us to the oh, the spine tick. um I think Bob hit the nail on the head there the ticks don't go down that deep, and that's first of all, and second of all, the thing that really tips your hand, Steve uh is saying something so sloppy, like uh that it that it attacks the vertebrate's spine. Who says that, as opposed to the invertebrate spine, really, Steve? That one's fiction. You made that up and you got sloppy.
1: So you all agree with the tongue parasite that yeah, uh, the fish parasite eats the tongue down to the nub, then latches onto the nub and lives out the fish's, living in the fish's mouth as a replacement tongue. You all think that one's real. And that one is science. Wow.
2: Yay, yeah. Tongue parasite.
1: That's so. You know, these parasites. Why do
0: they all have to do like incredibly weird shit? Parasites are so bizarrely disgusting. Why? These aren't the most evil
3: ones either. There are ones that make these look like pikers, right, Steve? Yeah. Well, yeah, but I didn't want to use ones that we've talked about before. Yeah,
1: like you know, I didn't use the one where the 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 parasite makes the ants climb up to the top of grass so that they can be easier to eat by birds. You know, that was fun. We've talked about that one. This one, you guys have to see the pictures of this one. I mean, it's just this giant parasite in the mouth of a fish, where its tongue should be, just sitting there. But the, you know, the fish apparently still function fine with the fake tongue, the oh, parasite man. tongue.
0: Yeah, except that in their head, they're screaming. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you
0: know, like give me a break. Yeah, the fish are fine. No,
2: no, <laughs> no. They're just, they're just yeah. thinking. They're just thinking. You know. I the, wish I uh, had hands. The, the, they're thinking the the food around this section of the sea is awful bland. Huh? All of a sudden. Uh,
3: no, they're thinking. It's they're thinking, it's they're thinking. Yeah, I got the tongue upgrade.
2: <laughs> no,
0: no, no, they're not, Bob. Tongue <laughs> no, upgrade, their
2: girlfriends no. are. Right.
0: <laughs> I mean, is there anyone? I mean, legitimately, is there any creature that has a parasite that's okay with it?
2: Jay, I just made the no. dirtiest joke, and you didn't even respond.
1: I didn't hear it. What would
0: you say? Nothing.
2: It's too late. Go on. You'll have to. So, listen do to the do show. punk
1: fish like go out of their way to get these these parasitic tongues?
2: <laughs> right. It's the new the new tongue <laughs> ring, new tongue stud.
1: tongue stud. Let's go back to number one. The spine tick attaches to the base of a vertebrate spine, where it digs down through the meninges to feed off the glucose in the spinal fluid rather than blood. Jay and Rebecca, you think this one is the fiction? Bob, you you bought this one, and this one is the fiction. Uh. Which one was the spine tick? Is the fiction? The of course, of course, it's fiction. <laughs> and saying a vertebrate spine is not sloppy—that <laughs> is sloppy. It, it is could not. be a vertebrate <laughs> skull. It's, it's they implied. Will do, they will do it to any vertebrate.
2: It's implied,
1: spine. It's ridiculous. Vertebrate. So the biggest, the biggest problem with this is that ticks are surface parasites. So it'd be, it would be yeah, hard but, to get down deep. But it's not inconceivable. I mean, it's a slight variation to their. Typical behavior Again, lots of variation in Yeah
0: but Steve Attacking the spine Is that Does that happen I, What's, I what's the
1: problem with this Rather than The spinal because, fluid Because
0: it will freaking It'll It could cr- It could cripple their host No just the
1: fluid done. Jay You go through the dura You start sucking out The sweet sweet Spinal fluid in, Inside Steve you know he's just well angry as anyone. That we You nicked the Freaking spinal cord Jay you're not cooked. the cord You don't have to go Anywhere near the cord You have a sack of fluid At the base of your spine No I yes, don't Yes you do
0: no, I don't have a sack of fluid in my you back. He doesn't have a no, spine. Yes do. I don't.
1: I no, I don't. <laughs> we I stick do, needles I in do. it all the time and draw
0: move out fluid, while you're sleeping.
2: <laughs>
0: I don't. I don't have a sack of anything except one. But other than that one, I don't have any sack situation. You only have or fluid one or anything anywhere. Base
1: of your spine is a sack of, of spinal fluid. You can get. You could no stick a needle you. in there and drain off fluid without getting anywhere near the spinal cord. Yes, uh, Thank you. Anyway. So
2: Made up, made up. Pictures. Which means
1: that <laughs> the sacculina one is a crab parasite that enters into the shell of a crab. Then its root-like extensions enter the crab's organs and nervous system. The crab is then helpless as the parasite lives out its life cycle in the crab shell. Is science
2: right? I know my parasites, man.
1: Yeah. So the uh, it takes over the crab, Bob. It is. It does joyride the crab and it and it makes it the, turns
2: into like a marionette. Yeah, of a basically. It, like it a little knows marionette. how to
1: eat. That's it knows. Horrible. Well, it, and it, it kind help. of allows the crab to do basic things like that. Oh, really, it, it, really? It it will it will make the crab do its own mating dance so that it can Pick mate it its own with goody. other parasites. Really? Other sacculina. It sticks it sticks out like its head out from the crab shell It says woo-hoo,
2: to, woo-hoo, to attract hey, mates.
1: He's
2: like, yeah, look what I got. Check out my new digs.
1: It's like well, yeah, like a guy in a, in a sports car, right? He sticks.
2: Or a mecha out. suit.
1: <laughs> Yeah
0: right right. S- Steve, <laughs> Steve, do I have such an insane aversion to to parasites naturally?
1: Like yeah, think I, think, natural I think I think disgust with things like that is totally hardwired. Um, some other parasites that came across the filiasis uh, or filariasis or the filarial phil- worm. This one is disgusting. This gives you the elephantiasis. It oh. blocks you up your lymphatic drainage and you get massive oh. limbs. You Guys, uh, one that's interesting is screwworms, which reminded me of the boar worms from Flash Gordon. They're <laughs> not the boar; they're <laughs> basically yeah, <remember> boar <laughs> worms. You put them on living tissue, and they bore down, you know, into the living flesh and eat it. And if you touch them, they they bore even deeper. They can enter through the navel or 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 the um, nasal Holy crap! They talked about the I mean, this one site where they're going over a bunch of like the most interesting parasites. They went over the candiru, which we talked about the the worm the Little fish that fish. crawls up your your willy yeah oh. um willy yeah willy. your the insane snail parasite that take that turns snails into zombies the amoeba. i remember this one from medical school the one that crawls in your eye no <laughs> no they don't do that
2: <laughs> oh come on it's just an amoeba and the, yeah they they
1: can't cause blindness though if you don't if you don't uh, treat it cuz it will cloud up your cornea
2: pretty neat yeah parasites are cool
1: but you gotta see you gotta see this picture of the fish with this parasite sticking out of its mouth
2: I've seen it and I can't unsee it
3: (laughs) (laughs) wow what a what a you know what a strategy you know just I'm I'm gonna live inside the mouth of something that eats a lot of good stuff so I can get first dibs on anything that it eats
1: yeah oh
3: jeez whatever works yeah right you know well, Evan
1: sent in the the uh, who's that noisy segment uh, since he couldn't make it, he did record it and sent it in so let 's play that and then we'll go to the quote of the week
6: Hi, everyone Evan here sorry i couldn't be around for the show, but I am here to reveal the answer to who's that noisy Here it is again for those of you who missed it last week. That music was recorded by Voyager 1 and 2 as they crossed paths with Jupiter, Saturn, and Neptune. Now, they weren't captured with a microphone, because audible sound obviously cannot travel through space, so Voyager was listening to electromagnetic waves around the planets and moons. And the waves were produced by space phenomena like the planet's magnetospheres, interacting with the sun's radiation. And they were released in the 1990s as part of the Voyager recording, Symphonies of the Planets. And the first person to guess correctly this week was from the message boards ZV470 is his designation was the first one to guess it correctly so congratulations ZV470 and a thank you also goes out to Chris Moffett of Washington who sent in this who's that noisy thank you Chris And now here's this week's who's that noisy
1: Thanks for that, Evan. Jay, can you please read us the quote of the week?
0: Yes, I will. Hold on.
1: This was a quote that was painstakingly found for
0: me by Caroline Gale. And it is a quote by George Bernard Shaw. The power of accurate observation is commonly called cynicism by those who have not got it.
3: George Bernard Shaw!
0: <laughs> George. That's a good quote.
3: Thanks Caroline.
0: Uh, Caroline Caroline spent a half an hour looking, looking up that quote for me Thank you Caroline
2: I have a thingy Announcement Yes um, On January 8th is, It's a Friday The Boston Skeptics are hosting A very special event The event is called How to have more sex With Richard Wiseman You can parse that sentence any way you'd like Uh, but you can be sure that it's going to be a very good time. It's going to be at the Brattle Theater in Harvard Square, and uh, tickets will be uh, cheap. I'm not sure how much yet, but uh, they'll be going on sale very soon through the Brattle's website, and it's going to be a fantastic time. He's going to come and and do uh, a whole uh, show thingy um, starting at 10 p.m. So, you know, it's for after the kids go to bed. And then he'll also be doing um, a book signing for his new book, 59 Seconds. Excellent. So be there.
1: And next week is our Decade in Review show. Wow. We're not only going to go over 2009, but we're going to talk about decade. the last 10 years of science, skepticism, and the paranormal and all that stuff. I can barely remember that. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. And we are absolutely bound to disappoint you. <laughs> I would say Aww. that. So thanks for joining me again everyone this week. Shirley. Thank you, Steve. Good thanks, times. Steve, and until next week, this is your Skeptics Guide to the Universe. The Skeptics Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission.